Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Uh, My name is Kurt Kroon, and I'm a pastor here at Cascade, and I am really glad that you're here this morning uh, because I think, and you get to tell me, I think we're going to have some fun this morning because we're going to be talking, we're in our message series on power dynamics, and we're going to be talking about religious power dynamics. Isn't that exciting? Uh, and here, here's the hope. We're, we're going to talk about why. We're, we're, so hopefully we can hold on to that thread the whole way we go. Why we're talking about religious power dynamics is because there's power dynamics in every relationship and every environment we ever go. Power dynamics are inherent in every system and institution that exists in the world. But often we're not aware of what's going on. And so we start to internalize feelings about who we are in the presence of God and who the presence of a Christian community. And sometimes those things are positive and great, but sometimes those are really deeply damaging. And so we want to hopefully turn the lights on to say, what are some of the power dynamics that happen in religious situations so that we can become free to be who we were created to be in the church, in Christianity, in this body of Christ that Jesus talks about and illustrates? And just so you know, if you're like, hey, you're putting a lot of pressure on me. I, like, I'm checking out this Jesus. I don't even know that I'm there yet. Now I'm in the body. I, I didn't sign up for that. There's this beautiful thing that in the language that Jesus uses that it's saying that there's this wonderful image of the God of all creation that's in each of us. And so it's a part of us, whether or not we we assign ourselves to it. And the names we assign ourselves and the names we assign our communities kind of don't matter because there's this spark, there's this image of God in the midst of each and every one of us. And the hope is that Jesus is calling this thing to bear. Jesus is calling this thing out into the world and to engage into a community so that more beautiful th- things can happen with all of us than with any one of us. That's why we're talking about this stuff. That's why we're going through it. Now, if we're going to talk about religious power dynamics, um, we should also say, let, let's name it, it's weird to have a pastor preaching that message. Uh, Because pastors are usually linked with a misuse of power dynamics. Uh, So that's the elephant in the room. Let's name that. And as we talk through this, if you've been a part of church communities in the past, you may already feel a bit of anxiety. You may have felt under the thumb or pushed out or excluded because of power dynamics in a religious organization. So the invitation for you is uh, we don't hand out cookies or awards for toughing it through or powering through. If you start to become, and I know it's an overused word, but it's a good word. If you're triggered, if you're harmed, if you feel like this isn't safe, uh, the invitation is for you to mentally dip out, doodle, sketch, think about a grocery list for tomorrow. That's a good thing to do. And you're also invited, you can stand up and go. You don't have to be in the room anymore. Now, the other caveat, because this is one of my favorite stories from the history of Cascade, you can also get up and go if you're not being triggered by spiritual abuse. Um, Because we had one of our first Sundays, uh, we had uh, interns our very first year, and they were talking about race, And their opening story was how someone came to their chapel at college and had this conversation about race, and all of these students were mad that they were talking about race and racism. They got up and walked out, and they're talking about how harmful that was. Now, while that was happening, and I shouldn't be giggling because it's a serious topic and one that demands this, but this is still a funny situation. 
a mother is sitting there and her high school daughter wasn't feeling well and had walked outside right before the message started and started vomiting outside. She was so sick. So she's texting her mom, can we go now? I need to leave. And the mom's like, I'm not getting up and walking out of service right now. Everyone's going to think I'm a racist. So she's like, hang on, honey. We probably got 30 to 40 more minutes and I'll be right out. Sat through the whole message, the whole message. So permission to walk out for any reason at any time. Know that. We'll think nothing of you. All right. So when we talk about religious power dynamics, I want to first talk about um, just kind of how the, the clarity of certain power dynamics in our world. So we have three different pictures up here, three different careers. When you walk into a courtroom, there's, there's no mistaking who's in charge. The judge is clearly in charge. And they have the gavel. They'll bang it if the courtroom gets out of order. They have the decision to either find you guilty, to find you innocent, and everything in between. Now, certainly, if we're, we're talking about a trial of the jury, the peers, it's different. But when we're talking about a judge, they're clearly in charge of the room. When you go to the bank and you'd say, here's my card, I'd like my money, the bank teller is in charge of if you get that money or not. When you call the police because you're scared there's a break-in, there's something that's happened, when the police officer shows up, they're like, I don't know, what do you want to do? They're there to be in charge. They are clearly the ones that have the power to make arrests, to stop people, to um, try and make the situation safe again. And these are, this is, uh, we talked about this last week, these are good uses of power. When we use the word power, we talk about power dynamics, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. You want the bank teller to give you your money and to not give not you your money. You want them to say no and have the power to say no. Otherwise, they're like, I don't know, you look like a Kurt Kroon, here you go. Uh, they're, they're, being, they're given that kind of power and they need to be able to utilize it. It's a good and positive thing. But here's where it gets a little tricky. When you walk into a church and there's a pastor that looks like me up front with a Bible, what kind of power does that pastor have? Thank you for giggling. I got so excited about using that picture because I'm positive this was a stock photo shoot. And he's like, what do you want me to do with my hands? And they're like, put them up. He's like, okay. If you're listening to the podcast, oversized shoot, kind of funny haircut, looks confused holding a Bible. When you walk into a church, the power dynamics aren't as clear or known. And one of the things that I wrote about this week in the newsletter, but, but I was even reflecting on my youth. When I was growing up as a kid in church, I didn't think that my pastor was God. Like there was no confusion. That was just the pastor. That was just the, the person that was kind of in charge of the church. But if my pastor had told me, hey, your last name's Croon, and croons don't go to heaven. Like, you're going to hell forever. I wouldn't have thought, oh, he's just wrong. He's not in charge of that. I'm probably fine. I would have been devastated. Because the implicit kind of understanding in a church is that the person who is speaking on behalf of God or the religious organization is the voice of God. And the voice of God in God is indistinguishable. You can create that, you can distinguish between those two, but functionally it doesn't matter. And I think that's part of the reason why failures of pastors 
uh, hurts so much. It feels way more personal. When they do things, it's that, but, but you were supposed to be called to this. You were supposed to be leading us in a conversation about the God of the universe who we believe is good and just and mercy. And so when these things happen, it becomes really confusing and messy and awkward. And this isn't just something that, that we're talking about or saying like, hey, this is kind of confusing, the power within a church or religious system. This is stuff that Jesus talked about a lot. And there's specific language in the Bible that um, was really, it impacted me a lot early on in ministry. It says that if you're a, a pastor, a leader, and you mislead uh, these young ones, kids, children, it is better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the lake. That's like New Jersey mob hit cement shoes language. It's better for you to go sleeping with the fishes than to mislead these little ones. It's saying there's a lot at stake here. And if you step into this profession, if you step into this world, you have to be awake and aware to the power dynamics that are at play. Otherwise, you can do so much harm with them. You can do so much damage with them. And so what we want to look at this morning is you can say, ah, this seems like a new conversation, like power dynamics is just something we just thought was cool in the last 20, 30 years. Why are we talking? Jesus seems to, all throughout his life and ministry, be very powerfully aware of power dynamics. And what we can learn from how Jesus stewards power means so much to us today, this week, how we engage in the world. So if you have a Bible with you or if you have uh, an app you can pull it up, I encourage you, we're going to look at Matthew 23 this morning. If you don't, that's okay. We're going to have some of the relevant scripture up on the screen. Um, But this is a pretty intense section of Jesus talking uh, in front of a crowd, talking specifically to Pharisees, uh, which is set of scene. Those are the pastors, the religious leaders of the Jewish religious system. These are the heads of the synagogues. And uh, just going a step further to know, um, in Jewish society, all Jewish boys were raised from a young age. Like when we send kids off to kindergarten, they would send the Jewish boys off to a Hebrew school to learn to become a rabbi. It wasn't like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was, you're going to try and be a rabbi. And the best of the best of the best of you will become that. The rest of you will go off to learn some other trade, some other thing to do. So think about the cultural significance of a Pharisee. If from kindergarten, everyone was trying to do one job, and only the best of the best did it. Now, the other thing to acknowledge, because another power dynamic that's going on, is that in the Jewish uh, system of society of this time, it's a patriarchal society, which means that men are valued more than women are. And so it is just Jewish boys are invited into this opportunity. It wasn't given to Jewish women in the same way. Um, and it's significant to point that out because we don't read this or look at that and say, nailed it, we need to get back to that. But rather, that was a reflection of the society at that point, and it's important to look at what Jesus is saying in addressing this to see that Jesus is inviting us to a different kind of power dynamics where it's a shared power. It's not just, uh, it's not just available to one gender or the other. This is a reflection of the society at the time. 
So Jesus is talking to them in Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. A couple of things to note already. One, who is Jesus talking to? He's not like, hey, Pharisees, come over here. Uh, What are you guys doing? You're really blowing it. He's speaking to his disciples, his followers in the crowds. And the Pharisees are there. They're not having a conversation behind their back. He's like, these Pharisees right here. And the first thing he said is, listen to what they sit because they sit in Moses' seat. And if you've been with us recently, we just got through a message series in Numbers, which looks at this desert period with Moses. Moses was the leader of the Israelite community in the desert. And they would all go to Moses to say, like, how do we figure out these different disputes or these different, how do we set the law? That was Moses' role, prominent fixture in the Jewish history and story. And he's saying, that's what the Pharisees, they sit in that same seat. And this is what I think is amazing. Jesus says, what they're teaching is great stuff. They have good source material. You should listen to them. Just don't do what they do. It's fascinating because so often we, when we talk about people, we usually use certain actions or behaviors to disqualify them in their entirety. So using an example for myself, I became aware growing up, when I, when I got into college, my parents got divorced. And when that happened, I immediately eliminated every piece of marital advice they ever gave me. It's probably all wrong because it didn't work. Looking back now, it wasn't that they had bad advice. It wasn't that they had bad insights into marriage and what it was. It was through different circumstances they were incapable to live out their own advice in their marriage. Because it's two people. It's a complicated relationship. And so often we use information or these things happen to disqualify the entirety of an individual. And what I love here is Jesus is already inviting to a more holistic view of people. You can listen to what they say, but we can still recognize that there's something wrong here. But we don't do what they do. I love that. It's an important teaching for all of us. Um, And the other thing that's important to note is look at what Jesus is saying. They're putting a cumbersome burden on the people, but they're not willing to help. Now, it's an interesting analogy to use in a religious system, and it's important when looking at power dynamics, because what Jesus is pointing to is the role of religious leaders is to help the people, to serve the people, to help make their burdens lighter. Usually in religious systems, when it comes to interacting with an all-powerful God of the universe, for lots of different reasons, people don't walk into that environment being like, yeah, God totally loves me. I'm going to be with God forever. I'm good. Over time and as a product of light, there tends to be a sense of dread. A fear starts to set in. An anxiety sets in that how does God view me and what does God think of me? And a lot of times you can even say, I've asked God, I've pursued God, and I've heard silence. People usually walk into religious spaces with a sense of anxiety and a kind of burden on there. What Jesus is saying is, you're making it worse. You are here to make it better. 
You're here to help people. Instead, you are giving them more and more rules and expectations and things to do. You're, making, you're using your power to oppress people, not to lift them up and help them. Jesus continues on, um, looking at verse 5. Everything they do, speaking of the Pharisees, is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. This is a good one. This is an impressive look at power dynamics. So what they're doing is they're wearing clothing to very clearly identify themselves as, I'm a rabbi, everyone look at me. And it's the kind of person that is walking down, they're like, hey, Cliff. And they're like, Rabbi Cliff? I didn't go to 15 years of rabbi school to be called Cliff. They're talking about, you need to call me and recognize me for my name, for my education, for my standing here. When Jesus points out, have you looked at their garments? The way they structure their things, they try to make them longer and wider so they're more noticeable. That's kind of silly, isn't it? immediately there's a shift in the power dynamics. And this is an intentional movement by Jesus to call out the ridiculousness of the setting, uh, not in an attempt just to shame, but to reorient the way that the power dynamics are held. The role of the rabbis, of the religious leaders, through the entirety of the Israelite system is for the people who are given this responsibility. It's just a whole tribe of people, initially in the Levites, to serve the rest of the community. It wasn't so that they would be the significant ones. They were the lucky tribe, and everyone else was down here. Jesus is trying to re-level this out. And when you speak to power, which is utilizing its power to hold it over others, and you're like, hey, I see that thing you're doing. That's kind of silly. It's a way of re-leveling power dynamics. I bet a lot of rabbis walked away from here and like, hey, we should probably trim a couple inches off of our tassels, huh? Yeah, yeah, Jesus called us out pretty good on that one. (laughs) Continuing on. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what's oftentimes called in this kind of study of Christianity, this upside-down orientation that Jesus keeps on calling to. I encourage you, the power, uh, the Sermon of the Mount is a whole message that Jesus gives that's on nothing but power dynamics. And it's all about leveling. It's all about reversal. It's all about some of you have put yourselves on the top and you see these people on the bottom and it's not that at all. It's actually the opposite. It's actually this flip that needs to happen. And what Jesus is saying is the people that have power continue to make movements and statements to hold on to their power, but true power is actually held in humility. See, too often what we do is we're like, oh, I just need to be humble and not have power. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that's where the real power is. The real power is understanding with a kind of humility who you are in the world. If you just zoom out for a second, thinking you're a really, really powerful ant It's kind of a silly concept to us. I can step on all of you. The most powerful of the ants could be stepped on. 
I don't mean that God is viewing us as ants with an intention to step on us. But what I do want to say is us puffing ourselves up as a human race and saying, I'm a more important human. When you zoom out a little bit, that's a pretty silly idea and concept. And when we zoom out, one of the things that comes is a kind of humility that says, oh, we have way more in common than we have separate. But our brains constantly try and categorize and like, these are the important people that will keep us safe and these are the unimportant people that I don't have to care about anymore. And what Jesus is saying is, that's not what this is at all. That's not what this is at all. And in fact, the people that exalt themselves, don't hang out with them, don't spend your time with them because they're not particularly worth hanging out with. Something I heard this week that I love, you you notice uh, if you've heard the Gospels a lot, how it uses that word sinners. It it says a lot, like Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors, which I love that pairing. Um, uh, When you think of it, in all the words that Jesus says, who isn't sinners? They're all sinners. So why, does, why do they use that language of sinners? What they're talking about when they say sinners is these were the people in the Jewish system that didn't have the financial resources to make themselves ceremonially clean, to be clean and pure in the standing of the Jewish society. It wasn't that they had done any more sin than anyone else. It was that they didn't have the financial ability to reinstate themselves into the community, which is the one thing that drew the most of Jesus' anger when he goes to the temple and they're selling the doves, which if you go back to the Old Testament, the selling of doves was, this is the sacrifice you can make if you have no money. That's why the doves are a part of this religious thing. It's some people are are sacrificing lambs or sheep, but they give this caveat in the Old Testament, you can sacrifice a dove if you don't have money. Jesus gets furious because they're jacking up the dove rates. They're making forgiveness and reinstatement in the society unattainable to the poorest of the poor. That's what they're talking about when they're like, Jesus is hanging out with sinners. It wasn't people who sinned. That's everybody. Jesus was intentionally going and eating, in Jewish systems, this is a big deal, eating with people who are ceremonially unclean. Because Jesus said, this whole system is broken. This whole system is gross. And I'm going to intentionally spend my time with the people you have rejected and you've set out at the bottom because that's where the learning, that's where the growth is, that's where the gospel's at. That's where the good news of God is at, is the people you've cast aside and you've ignored. Jesus is constantly reversing this power structure. Now, what I want to do for the next little bit is Jesus doesn't stop here going, and he leads to this section called the woe level Messiah burns. But Jesus keeps going, and he leads to this section called the woes. And I just want you to hear it, and we're going to put up on the screen the names that Jesus calls the Pharisees. Continuing in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and then when he becomes one, you make them twice the son of hell you are. Oh, woe to you, blind guides. Think about that for a second. You're like, hey, I'm here to take the underground Portland tour, and someone comes up with a cane. You're like, no. I'm not trying to be ableist, but I would like my guide to be able to negotiate the places that we're supposed to see. Like, that's the thing that we're here to do. When Jesus calls you a blind guide, you're leading people nowhere. 
because you don't see. And this taps in again and again to the thing that Jesus keeps saying. Those that have eyes but don't see, those who have ears but don't hear. There's a spiritual blindness. There's a spiritual deafness. It's way more significant than a physical one. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if they swear by the gold of the temple, he is bound by oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple or that that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, they're bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out the gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees and hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is not a sermon Jesus is giving. This is a straight-up rap battle, and Jesus is leveling everyone. And I want you to capture, not to be cute or trite, but this is 8 Mile, and Jesus is destroying people. And I want you to even see in the background, this is one of my favorite gifts to send when someone says something that's funny. This is the crowd as Jesus is going on. When Jesus is saying, woe to you blind Pharisees, people are like, oh no, he didn't. Jesus keeps going after these people, and he doesn't stop. There is audible gas, as they say. (gasps) But I think they're gas for the long reasons. I think initially they're gas because they're saying, well, if they can't be holy and right, then what hope do I have? That is a symptom of upside-down power dynamics. That's a symptom. It's not the problem. It's the symptom of when we think that people that are leading religious systems, which certainly have a high responsibility in how they live themselves, if they don't have a chance or they don't have a hope, if they failed, what chance do I have? That's because we've oriented our way of seeing one another way that isn't helpful and isn't the way that God sees us and views us. The language in the New Testament all the time, which is so helpful, is a priesthood of all believers. Are you you trying to see this Jesus thing that he was coming and saying, the way that he was living, the way he was engaging the world? Welcome to the priesthood. Now it's all of us. We all get to be a part of it. And I hope that we would see that any time there's someone up here, the thing that they're exercising is their ability in in the body to communicate these truths in these things as they understand them. It's not more important than any other role or gift or thing that was done. The folks that come and lead us in music, the folks that are setting up the sound, those that bring out the coffee, those that set out the bulletins and collect the, the tithes and offerings, these are all a part of the manifestations of how we serve in this room and space, and it goes 10 times more outside of here. 
you are some of the most amazing, incredible people that do incredible things in your lives. Some of you are responsible for the well-being of our children. You are raising them up. You think this, this thing I'm doing right now, is more important than that? No. In no way. And not that this thing that I'm doing right now is less important. It's just a different kind of important. Those are educators, baristas, those are workers, those are police officers, those that serve as teachers and educators, baristas, those who work in the service industry. These are amazing manifestations of some of our skills and gifts. And if we look at some people and like, oh, if they failed, what hope do I have? That's a whole messed up system that Jesus is absolutely bent on taking down because it will poison us. Jesus isn't doing this to be vindictive. Jesus isn't doing this to try and, hey, they're getting a little big in their shorts. Let's take them down a little bit. Jesus is saying this system is poison and it will kill us. We have to take it down. But after you take down a system, or once you recognize the flaw in a system, a good question is, well, well, what's a better system? What's another system that should be put in its place? One of my favorite statements is, any old donkey can tear down a barn. It takes a special donkey to build one. (laughs) I like that. Because I think ultimately, as people who are following Christ, we're invited into building something, not just tearing things down. Jesus didn't do this just to tear things down and wreck them and to walk away and being like, deal with that. Jesus was building something. There's this great book um, that was written in 1993. It's called Pastor Power by Martha Ellen Stortz. And I'm going to use something that she talks in there because she talks about power and power dynamics, specifically in religious systems, and three different ways I think are helpful. And that's power over, power within, and power with. And these are different ways that we utilize power, understand power. So so let's kind of talk through this. The first is power over is a hierarchical use of power. It's usually possessed by one person over another. Um, If you're unfamiliar against hierarchy, hierarchy gets a bad rap. It's not always a bad thing. Hierarchy is where you have a clear flow chart and everyone knows who they report to, right? And uh, this is something that has been honed for generations and generations in our military, You don't want everyone to be in charge in a military situation. It's clear to know this is the chain of command and this is the person who's making the call and these are the different people who are doing these things. But when you take that system, a system that works really well in the military and you put it in the church, the church and the military aren't the same thing. It's not that same kind of hierarchy where Well, you're a congregant, and if you have any concerns, go talk to a deacon. The deacon will inform the elders, and the elders will inform the pastor, and there we go. And, you know, Jesus, I'm sure, up there somewhere. But this is kind of the clear flow chart within the church. That's not what this is. But when we model that system here, we can do a lot of harm. And if you're curious about what kind of harm, one of the things that was really impactful for me is how this kind of power dynamics plays out negatively in a church is most people that are pastors or leaders within a church, um, most people tend to like, otherwise it'd be an empty church and no one would be there. But usually someone along the way says, hey, there's this question I have about this system. There's this way that we do things as a church I don't quite understand. So maybe they grab coffee with the pastor, maybe they send him an email, maybe they come talk to them. 
And in private, the pastor will say, you know, that was a really harmful, dangerous email you sent. That phone call you made, I'm getting a little worried about some of these conversations you're having. Or maybe the pastor initiates with you and say, hey, I saw the things you've been reading or the things you've been listening to. These are pretty dangerous. And all of a sudden, you see a side of the pastor or the leader that no one else sees. And then when you go to the rest of the congregation or your friends in the congregation who have known you for years and love you, you're like, yeah, I had this weird interaction. And they're like, what, the really nice person up front? No, I've never seen that. And so now you start to think, well, maybe I might be crazy. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't have this understanding. So you try and follow up and have another conversation. They continue to say, yeah, you're not doing things in the right way in this clear hierarchical setting. They have the power over you. And the thing ultimately they're threatening is your participation in the body and your community. That they can make it nearly impossible for you to bring your image of God to bear in this system. And so what usually happens is people leave, not all at once, that would raise some alarms, one at a time over several months and years. And every single person who leaves the church body makes up a story about why they had to go and why they had to leave and why it's better that we're here and we're safe. This is the symptoms of a hierarchical system in church that creates all kinds of undue harm for certain people. And If you've been a part of a church, I'm sure you know those people. I'm sure when they left first, you talked about them. And then they were probably the first call you made when you left the church. Sandy, that happened to you too? Oh, I had no idea. That's power over. Power with of a person to harness their own before we get to power with is that the strength of a person to harness their own thoughts and feelings in positive ways. Now, when I say positive ways, I don't want you to interpret that as hugs and unicorns and, and rainbows. Positive ways sometimes looks a lot like Jesus saying, woe to you, your whitewashed tombs and camel eaters. Sometimes positive ways is confronting the systems of power that are poisoning the entire well for everybody. Okay, so you don't say, you don't seem very happy right now. You must be using your power negatively. Oh, no. There are effective ways to use our power that comes from a place of desperation, of hurt, of pain, of recognizing the flaws in a system that are necessary. It's actually a positive harnessing of your power. And here's the other thing. Our example for this kind of power within and positively harnessing the power is Jesus Christ. There is, if if we're going to take this whole Christian thing seriously, there's no more powerful individual that has ever walked the face of this earth than Jesus Christ. Point to me an example from any one of the Gospels or the stories about Jesus where Jesus utilized that power for his own benefit. Not five, one. Give me one. Jesus was the most powerful person in the room in every room Jesus ever stepped into and never used the power for himself or to reinforce the power of those who already had it. Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was calling fishermen, which by the way, remember the system where everybody was training to be a rabbi? They were the dropouts. If they were fishermen, that means they were rabbi dropouts. So that's who Jesus was hanging out with. When Jesus is walking through town and was like, look at the faith of this Samaritan woman. Fascinating study. Go look at Jesus' use of the word faith. Never once does he affirm the faith, the faith of any of the religious elites. Only the outsiders. 
only the Roman centurion, only the faith of the Canaanite woman. It's always those people that Jesus is using the power that Jesus has to harness in positive ways, to lift those who can't see it because of a poison system so that they can start to see it. The last thing that kind of gets to this picture is power with. And power with is a community of people who clearly recognize their interdependent relationships with one another. I hinted at it before. This is the image that they use of the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, just like our bodies, we have different roles, we have different skills, we have different gifts. And when we bring those things all to bear, there can be incredible things that the human body is capable of if we're all working together. But if certain parts of your body, if your lung was like, Ugh, this lung game is boring, it's so repetitive, I'm going to go, I'm going to step out, I'm going to go to five years of brain school and see what I can accomplish. That would be devastating for you. What you want is the body to recognize each part that it is and the beautiful thing that it does to contribute to the whole. And when we step into this, your body, you are sitting in right now a perfect metaphor for what God has for us as a community. And I don't just mean us here in this room. I mean us, big you us, not us, big you us, the whole world, all of us. And I think it's important because we constantly define the body of Christ by the people that are around us. And it's way bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. So how do we constantly say, oh, I need to meet more and more of this body of which I'm a part so I can understand more and more how God is calling me to interact. This is the powerful dynamic of power dynamics that are held well. The power is with, and we're unlocking this power within all of us. I'm going to go here for a quick second, and then we're going to jump out, and then we're going to finish. Sound good? Okay, this is another power dynamic. I have a mic, and you're like, no. I'm like, well, I'm still going to do it, and I am so sorry. Let's talk about financial mindsets. I learned this in seminary. It's really, really helpful. Uh, these are mass, uh, massive uh, kind of generalities, but it's talking about basically where you come from, how you view money. And the reason why I'm bringing it in is I think it has a lot of parallels with power. If you grow up in poverty, money is meant to be spent. And usually if you spend any time in uh, places that are financially tenuous or uh, economically tenuous, you don't save your money because someone could steal it. If you get money, you spend it. That's what it's for. If you grow up in a middle class where money is kind of more stable, then money is meant to be saved. Put it in a bank account. You don't keep it at your house. What are you, crazy? You go, you go, you'll save it somewhere. And if you have wealth, well, there's a whole backdrop of money that like, I'm never going to be living on the street, so let's invest it. Let's see if we can make even more. What's really fascinating about this mindset study is that you can pluck someone from poverty and you can put them in wealth, and guess what? The mindset won't change. So how is it that MC Hammer got all this money from you can't touch this, and yet he has none of it today? This isn't a judgment statement on MC Hammer, but because when you come from a place of poverty, that money was meant to be spent. That's what it was there for. In the same way, we can have power mindsets, and this is how we view the way that we utilize power. So if you look at it in a power mindset, you can say that ultimately that power over is understanding that power is meant to be used. People with this kind of power over mindset 
it doesn't matter how little power they have, they will find a way to exercise that power over someone, usually abusively. Um, Frustrated parents with young kids. The image that we use in talking about dogs, an animal, a pet, if you ultimately power is meant to be used over someone, whenever you have power over someone, you will exercise that power, usually in negative ways. Because it's almost like a drug to remind yourself, I have some power. If you understand that there is a power within mindset, then power is to be saved, to be stewarded. The, re- the reason why we have it is I want to hold on to it. And you can hear some of this in language on, hey, I'm just saving my chips. I don't want to spend all my chips right now in this conversation or this relationship. It's because this understanding that the power that I have needs to be held on to until one day when I need to spend it or use it. The power with mindset is ultimately power is meant to be invested Look at the Jesus investment model of power. You could say that Jesus made some poor investments. He called Peter the rock of the church. We're going to build the church on Peter. Anyone who did organizational studies would have come into the disciples and been like, Peter? That is not a good call. That guy's a wild card. He jumps out of boats. He cuts off, you know, Roman centurion's ears. Like, I wouldn't trust that guy with my parakeet, much less your entire religious system and movement. And yet Jesus saw and invested generously in everyone. Jesus calls and invests in Zacchaeus. Jesus calls and invests in Mary Magdalene. Jesus continually says, my power is going here. The most powerful person to ever step in any room says, my power goes here. I think Jesus was modeling and inviting us to shared power throughout the church. And when I say the church, I I do mean cascade. And I think we have a lot of follow-up conversations as a community. And that's part of what we want to do with this eight-week experiment on how do we really share power as a congregation with all of us. Because we don't think that, well, just because we're aware of this, we're not going to do it. No. Awareness is the first step. But then you have to build structures and systems to reflect your values, to actually set them up in that way. While I mean cascade, I also mean big C church. What does it look like for people that are saying, hey, this message of what Jesus is trying to do is so important that I need to live this out everywhere I go. And how do I harness the power that I have to share and invest it greatly in those who might even have less? How do I step into a room and how do I recognize the power in someone else and call that out? I just saw you do this. It was amazing might be the first time they've ever heard that. It might be the first time they've ever recognized the power that they have. The most dangerous power is power unrecognized. When we don't recognize the power that we have, that's when we're going to hurt people with it because we don't think it's a thing. So when we call out the power that we have in ourselves and we call out the power in one another, we're inviting a world that Jesus came to see come to light. Jesus used language of the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. This is part of what Jesus was talking about. A place where power is celebrated and shared and used to lift all people. Because everyone created by one God who placed, God placed that image in every single person then there is no better than. There is no leveraging power dynamics. There's just power to be unlocked and explored and shared.
Would you pray with me?